We are continuing our study today in the book of Acts. We have come and made our way to chapter 5 today. And um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, we love you, and Lord, we thank you for these opportunities that you give to, for us to partner with you, to be your hands and feet in other countries. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity in one so close there in Mexico. Lord, I pray today that you would minister your word to our hearts as we study it, that you would do a work in our lives today. We pray for the uh, youth camp happening right now and finishing up today, that you would just continue to pour out your spirit there and just do a work in the lives of each and every young person and each and every leader that is up there. And we just thank you that um, you are on the move, God, and we get to be a part of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you care? Um, (laughs) A few of you, all right? You know, I I read this week that tickets for the game, for the cheap seats, are going as high as $5,000. Isn't that crazy? For the club and premium seats, $23,000 for a ticket to the Super Bowl. Now, I want you to imagine the stadium full of fans who have shelled out, you know, a lot of money for these seats. And then there's millions of people who are watching online. And, you know, the, the teams are lined up on the sidelines and they have all their gear on. And, and suddenly the, the officials blow the whistle and neither team takes the field. Wouldn't that be crazy? I mean, that would be an outrage. There'd probably be riots, there'd be heavy fines, you know, for that. Well, sometimes I think that that might be the Lord's perception of many in his church. That we're all suited up, we're on the sidelines, we're ready, we're equipped for action, but we never, ever enter into the game. And I've used this analogy before, but I love to remind you of this, that what we're doing here this morning, this is not the game, okay? This is the huddle, all right? We are in the huddle. The game is when we go out of here and enter into our world this afternoon. And when you guys enter into, you know, uh, your world and your circle of influence at work and at school and in your neighborhood tomorrow, that's the game. The game is you and I living for Jesus in this broken world. And that's the focus of our study here in the book of Acts. What does it mean for us as a church to be the church in this broken world in which we are living? And we've been looking at the early church as our example, and we've seen that the growth of the early church has been incredible. It's defied any and all explanation as this small group of unqualified people with no money and no power and no influence literally turned their world upside down and changed human history. And they did so only having two weapons at their disposal. They had the message, the powerful message of the gospel, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we saw God, we've seen God just move and work in incredible ways. 
And last week, Pastor Aaron did, did an amazing job in finishing up chapter 4, but he pointed out there in verse 33 of chapter 4, notice it says, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase, great power, is literally mega power. And the root word there for power in the Greek, it's, it's the root dudamis from which we get our English word dynamite from or dynamic from. So they're moving, they're testifying. Think of a courtroom. They're giving witness. They're testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then it tells us in verse 33 that, that they were, there was great grace upon them. In other words, God's favor was upon them. So God's moving mightily through this group of normal followers of Jesus Christ. And we've seen in our study in the book of Acts how this church was marked by great unity and generosity, that they were a sharing church, that they were given to helping those who were in need. People were selling land and bringing money from their, their, their sales to the church to help those who were in need. And, and it was like, no one was like, you know, hey, that's my car. Or, or that's my house. No, it was Mikasa is, is Sukasa. Everything was common. Their properties, their possessions, their, their toothbrushes. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sure they had some limits somewhere, all right? But they're sharing. You see, the gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and tightened their grip on one another. And that's always the case of what the, the gospel does. It loosens our grip on our stuff. That's why one of our core values here at Calvary Vista is we, we like to say that we have been blessed in order to be a blessing. In other words, Jesus has blessed us so much in what he has given to us in salvation that, that we want to just share in that blessing through generosity in service with those less fortunate. A trip to Mexico is a great example of what that looks like. So God was moving in great power and great grace, and there was great joy as many were coming to faith in Christ, and the outside opposition of the enemy that we've seen here in chapter 4, that they came and laid hands on them, and they threatened them, and they tried to silence them, that, that outside opposition was not slowing the church down at all. So Satan is going to switch his approach here in chapter 5. Instead of external opposition, he is going to seek to bring an internal attack. And this is what we see here in chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today. But for context's sake, I want us to begin reading back in chapter 4 at verse 33. So follow along as I read. It says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and, and great grace was upon them all, nor was there any one among them who lacked for all who were possessors of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things which were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed them to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So God here is doing great things. He's moving and working. But chapter 5 begins with this ominous word, but. But. 
And that signals a dramatic change in the story. Great things are happening, but then we read, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds and his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira are following the lead of Barnabas, and they decide to do the same thing, but with one caveat. They decided that they were going to sell a piece of land, but they were going to keep back part of the money for themselves. And here's the caveat, but tell the church that they were giving anything, everything. Now notice, no one was pressing them to sell their land. No one was requiring them to give all the proceeds. In fact, no one was requiring them to give anything, but they come up with this scheme to deceive the church. And so in the midst of God moving with great power and great grace, resulting in great joy, we see an attempt here of great deception. That this couple blatantly tries to deceive the church leaders in their giving. Now, how many of you have ever heard this statement or had this statement uttered to you? I'm not interested in going to your church because the church is filled with hypocrites. How many of you have heard that before? Okay. Yeah. And you know what? That is true. The church is full of hypocrites. In fact, I, I, I hate to say this, but it is true. There are some hypocrites among us. Would all the hypocrites please stand up? No, I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> but there are. And we see here that this is not a new problem. Ananias and Sapphira were part of the church. They were a part of their worship gatherings. They were gathering to study the word of God. They were partaking in communion, but they turned out to be hypocrites. Now, here's the question. What is a hypocrite? Well, let's first talk about what a hypocrite is not. Listen closely. A hypocrite is not someone who is generally genuinely trying to live for Jesus and follow Jesus who sometimes stumbles. It's not somebody who's trying to live for Jesus who fails at times in their walk to get it right or who sometimes gives into their flesh, that is called being human. And you know, I have told you many, many times before that here at Calvary Vista, no one has arrived, all right? I haven't arrived, you haven't arrived, none of us have arrived. We are all still a work in progress. We are all broken people who are in the process of being transformed by our loving Redeemer, Jesus. That is true of every single one of us. You know, it's been said that justification, that's when you give, put your faith in Jesus Christ and God declares that you are righteous in his sight. Justification is the miracle of the moment, but sanctification, that's being set apart. That's the process of a lifetime. And all of us are still in the midst of that progress, that process. So a hypocrite is not someone who genuinely is trying to live for Jesus who sometimes stumbles. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypokrites, 
Sounds just like it. And it is a, it means to wear a mask. It was taken directly from the acting world, the plays that they would do in that culture. They would literally have those masks that you would put on, like we would see like at a masquerade party, you know? And sometimes they would have one mask and it'd have a little tear on it. So they'd put that on to show that they were sad, but they had another mask that was a happy face. They'd put that mask on when they were portraying someone who was happy. So you could say that they were two-faced. And that's what being a hypocrite is. It's somebody who is two-faced. Let me give you some words to describe hypocrisy. Duplicitous is, is a great word because that describes someone who is intentionally misleading others. That's what's happening here. They were intentionally misleading the church. Another word for hypocrisy is deceitfulness, disloyal. Um, those are great words to describe someone who is a, a hypocrite. So Ananias and Sapphira are being hypocrites, but God is going to expose them here to protect his church. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? So it was yours, in other words, to do with what you wanted. And after it was sold, was it not in your control? No one is forcing you to do anything here. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart and you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God? Now, let's pause there for a minute. And several just things I want to point out about what we just read. The first is that Peter is given here a, what is known as a spiritual gift of a word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a gift from the Holy Spirit where you are given knowledge about something or someone that you would not previously had on your own. So no one informed Peter here. The Holy Spirit is impressing upon his heart that Ananias is being deceitful and he calls them out. The second thing I want you to notice is that Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, when he says that, he's not saying that, that Ananias was being possessed by the devil at this moment. Because that word filled is actually seen in contrast to what we read back in chapter 4 and verse 31 when it says that the apostles, the church, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that Paul has taught us that when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not like they lose control of all of their faculties. No, they have control to either resist the Holy Spirit or to be led by the Holy Spirit. So the idea here is not that Ananias was being controlled by the devil, but the idea is that he was being influenced by the devil. You know, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 6 is talking about the spiritual battle that we all find ourselves in. And he says that we need to stand strong and, and with the armor that God has provided for us, that we need to stand against the fiery darts of the wicked one. Well, the fiery darts are not literal, literally literal fiery darts. It's not like we're going through life going, oh, there's one, there's one. No, the fiery darts are thoughts. That's how Satan attacks us. It's the thoughts that he puts into our minds. And he puts this thought in the mind of this couple. You can sell your land, but you don't have to give all the proceeds to the church, but you can tell them that you did. He puts that thought in their mind. He's influencing them, and they went with it. 
So this is what Peter is talking about when he means by Satan has filled your heart. The third thing I want you just to note for you theologians is Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, verse 3, to the Holy Spirit? But then in verse 4, he says this, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And so this is a great little proof text for the Trinity. People want to question the Trinity. Satan just called the Holy Spirit God, okay? And the, Holy, the Trinity is, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three beings that are all one, and he makes a reference to that here. So Peter confronts him. What happens next is ominous. Look at verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He dies. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Understandably so, right? And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You know, people talk about being slain in the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to knock that, but this is being slain by the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is like literally um, what's happening here. Verse 7, it says, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. She's wondering, like, where's my husband? He came to meet with you guys and he hasn't come back, not knowing what happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So she's lying too now. And I just want to pause here for a minute and ask you ladies, what what was Sapphira supposed to do here? Is she supposed to be a good wife and submit to her husband? Listen, ladies, ask yourself, what would you have done? What would you have done in this situation? Your husband comes up with this plan to deceive and misrepresent yourselves. What should you do? Ladies, listen to me. Submission never means following your husband into sin. Never. Make note of that. Never does submission require you to follow your husband into sin. And if you follow your husband into sin under the banner of submission, you will have to answer to God for your actions like Sapphira is going to answer here. So notice verse 9. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. And then we read again in verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things, understandably so. This is a crazy story, isn't it? Let's just put it in modern day language for a moment. So last year when the war broke out in Ukraine, you know, and we had missionaries and pastors and churches that are part of our Calvary Chapel family over in Ukraine, and they were having to flee the country. And so we took up um, and made opportunity for anybody that wanted to help them to give. And you guys stepped up big time. We had uh, tens of thousands of dollars that came in to, to help help them. But instead of making that available to give online, let's say we had a Sunday morning, we had a box up here and we said, Hey, if you want to give to help our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, you know, you can come up right now and you can tell us what you're going to give and put it in the box. And so one couple comes up and they're like, we're giving a hundred dollars and they put their envelope, you know, in the box and we're all clapping. Woo! And then another couple comes up and goes, we're giving a thousand dollars and they put their envelope in the box and we're all cheering. Now we would never do this, but, but, uh, you know, but, but then the next couple comes up and they say, you know, we're giving five thousand dollars and we're all, wow. And we, you know, they put their thing in the box and the Holy Spirit says to me, they're lying. 
They're not giving five thousand dollars. They're they're giving they're giving fifty bucks. And so I call them on it. I say, why are you guys lying to the Holy Spirit? You're not giving five thousand dollars. You're giving fifty dollars. And like, no, 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 we're really giving five thousand. It's like, no, you're not. And they drop dead on the spot. I mean, would that be crazy? <laughs> and then we're calling the interns. You know, that's the young men. You know, you can take these guys out. You know, and <laughs> take them to the morgue. I mean, that'd be that'd be insane. Can you imagine, you know, the word in the community? Man, that Calvary Vista is a, if you lie to God, you get killed. You know I mean? Right? That's what's happening here. I mean, this is, this is nuts. But this story prompts two questions from us. Two things I want us to, to look at today in the remainder of our time. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? That's the first question. And the second question is this, was God's judgment of them too severe? Let's look at the first one first. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Well, their lies were symptomatic of a much deeper problem. The deeper problem was this, they loved their money and they loved the praise of people. So they lied so they could keep their money and so they could get the praise of people. Their motivation was recognition. They wanted to be held in higher esteem in the eyes of the church. And let's be honest, we do that sometimes ourselves. We can say things to make ourselves seem more spiritual or more generous than we really are. We can stretch the truth You know, we're speaking evangelistically, we can say. You know, we're stretching the truth in order to gain recognition and esteem. But I also want you to note that Satan is the mastermind of this scheme. He's the one that puts the thought in their mind. What was his motivation? What is his goal? Satan is trying to get this couple that lacked integrity into a position of prominence in the early church. Because Satan knows what Jesus said about leaven is true. Jesus said a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of yeast is going to impact the whole loaf of bread, in other words. And leaven in the Bible is likened to sin. And so the idea is a little bit of sin left alone can spread through the whole life. It can spread through the whole family. It can spread through the whole church. And that is what Satan, no doubt, is hoping for, is that he can weaken the church from within because his first attempt to weaken the church from it without, through persecution, didn't work. So Satan is trying to infiltrate the church through compromise and through the hypocrisy of this couple. But this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. 
And then it says, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's me. In other words, the field is the world and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That's you guys. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And so what's happening here in Acts chapter 5 is merely a fulfillment of that parable. Satan is trying to sow tares amongst the wheat by appealing to Ananias and Sapphira's love of money and desire for prominence and recognition in the church. And so they come up with this plan to deceive. But that brings us to the second question. Was God's judgment of them too severe? Many today would think that. Many today reading the story in the Bible, and you might even be sitting here today and going, this is, this is ludicrous. It's offensive to you. Like, why would God kill two people simply because they were lying? That just seems extreme. Well, here's what you need to understand. Here's what we need to recognize. Is that in the history of God's people, Whenever God was doing a new thing, he would often institute a severe judgment in order to set a high standard. Because he wants his people to know that he is holy and that he takes sin and compromise seriously. So there's a principle in scripture known as the principle of first precedent. And here's the idea. When something new was happening, when God was doing something new, he would institute a serious judgment in order to send a message to that generation and future generations. And the message was this, sin and compromise were serious to God. So let me give you a couple examples. We see in Leviticus chapter 10. The children of Israel are in the wilderness. God gives them the instructions for building the tabernacle. The tabernacle gets built, and they're going to begin having their sacrifices and their times of worship. And the two sons of the high priest Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, two priests, decide that they're going to go in to the the temple, but they're drunk. They're intoxicated. So the Bible says that they come into the, not the temple, the tabernacle, and they offer strange fire. They're intoxicated trying to do the work of God. It'd be like me showing up here today and being intoxicated and slurring all over my, you know, words. Sometimes you probably feel that way when I'm talking, but uh, that was a joke. But um, (laughs) sometimes my English isn't that great. But anyway, and God strikes them dead. And he was basically sending a message to all the priests. Hey, what I've called you to is a holy calling. Don't take it lightly. We see it a little bit later in the story of the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 6 or Joshua chapter 7. It's when the children of Israel are, are now ready to enter into the promised land. Joshua has been commissioned to lead them in to this new land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where they're going to you know, set up uh, their, their camps and build their homes. And, and the first obstacle that they're going to be tasked with you know, defeating is the big city, great city of, of Jericho. And God tells them, I'm going to give you this victory, but I don't want you to take any spoil. But one of the guys, a guy named Achan, takes some of the spoil, hides it in his tent. 
Well, the next battle they're ready to go out is a little village called Ai. It's so small. Joshua says, we don't even need the whole army. Just take a couple platoons and go out. Well, they get soundly defeated. And God reveals to Joshua that there was sin in the camp. And suddenly God reveals that the sin was in the family of Achan. That Achan had disobeyed the Lord and taken part of the spoil. And so Achan and his whole family end up being killed as a punishment. And again, it was a new thing. It was the beginning of of this new work. And so God was setting a a precedent. We see it a little bit later in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is when David suddenly finally becomes the king in Israel. And the first thing on David's heart is that he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which has been in the land of the Philistines for a really, really long time. He wants to bring it back to Jerusalem. It's a great desire. It was a great idea. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence among his people. But the problem is, is that, that David decides that he's going to bring the Ark back the same way the Philistines transported it, and it was on a new cart. So he gets all the people together. It's a big hoop. The bands are playing and David's dancing. Well, the cart hits a bump and it begins to stumble. The ark's going to fall. This guy, Uzzah, reaches out to, to hold the ark up. I mean, it's a good thing. And God strikes him dead. Because you see, it was the right desire, right thing, but doing it the wrong way. And God tells us in John chapter 4 that, that we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit is the right heart. Truth is the right way. David ignored those instructions. So David's all upset. Like, why did you do that? God, we're trying to do the right thing. And God reveals to him, you're not doing it the right way. So sometimes in scripture, God will do this. And this is an example. Here we see new church, new work of God, new covenant is being established. And this couple is trying to, through hypocrisy, ruin that. And so God moves in a way here to let them know, to set a precedent that um, compromise and hypocrisy is not okay with God. So God will do something at one time to send a message for all time. And the message here is, I'm not okay with hypocrisy. Don't lie to me. I don't take sin lightly. So the real question here is not why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? The real question, if we're honest, is why does God allow any of us to live, right? That's the real question. Because we, if we're honest, we've all had our moments when we've been more concerned about our money than God. We've been more concerned about the praise of people than God. If we're honest, most of us here at some time in our walk with the Lord have played the hypocrites. But God didn't strike us dead. Praise God. Because this was not meant to be a rule. It was meant to be a picture. It was meant to be a statement. And here's the thing. Hear me on this. Sometimes those of us who are living in this age of grace, if we're honest, we can be too casual about sin. We'll we'll, we'll knowingly, willingly compromise. And this is the thought in our mind. Oh, God will forgive me. He's going to forgive me. He's gracious. He'll forgive me. And stories like that, like this, remind me. The story here in Acts chapter 5 reminds me that God is holy, that he hates sin. And he hates it because he knows what it can do to his people. Paul the Apostle said this in Galatians chapter 6. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's the law of sowing and reaping. God says, hey, you sow to your flesh, you're going to reap destruction. That's what happens. But here's the mistake that we can often make. We forget that God is long-suffering. And so we compromise and nothing happens. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that, hey, it must not, not be a big deal. God must not care. Or we might even deceive ourselves into thinking like, hey, I got away with that one. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 speaks to that mentality. It says this in verse 11. Because the sentence against evil and evil work is not executed speedily. In other words, sometimes it takes time. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Oh, nothing happened, so I'm going to keep doing this, is what it's saying. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged. Nothing happens, in other words. Yet, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are a shadow, because he does not fear before God. In Numbers 32, verse 23, it says, you can know and be assured of this, your sin will find you out. Just because God is being patient, he's being long-suffering and bringing discipline doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Our sin will find us out. Well, let's close this morning by looking at some lessons. What are some lessons that we can learn? I want to give you four things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, we can learn this, that we can lie to others, but we cannot lie to God. We can lie to others, but we cannot lie to God. You see, the Holy Spirit always knows what you're thinking as if they were being displayed, wouldn't this be crazy, on this big screen, you know? That's how he sees it. What you are thinking, what you are doing, he sees it like this LED wall behind me. The Holy Spirit knows. When my kids were younger and they were doing something shady, the Holy Spirit would always tell my wife. My wife would say, hey, are you doing this? And they're like, how did you know? You know, it's like God would tell her every single time that they were doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And, and you know, he would just reveal that to, to her. Drove them crazy. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Are you lying to the Holy Spirit today? Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you really are? Are you playing the hypocrite in some way? You see, here's the thing. I don't know your heart. The person next to you doesn't know your heart, doesn't know what's going on. Your spouse might not even know what is going on, but God sees your heart, and he's begging you today to come clean. He wants us to be a people who are loving him and are surrendered to him with all of our hearts. So that's number one. We can lie to others, but we cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. Here's number two. When sin is dealt with, it produces a healthy fear of God in the church. We see in verse 5 and verse 11 that it says, So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. 
Now, I want you to understand, though, what I mean by the fear of the Lord. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, that doesn't mean that you're afraid, you know, that if you just step out of line a little bit, that God's going to clobber you. That's not the fear of the Lord. It doesn't mean that if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing that, you know, God's going to make it so your car breaks down or your brakes are going to give out today, you know, as you're driving. That's not what the God who is our father does. That's not how he operates. That's how the Godfather operates. All right. That's not how God operates. Okay. So the fear of God is, it's not like, oh, if I step out of line, God's going to clobber me. He's going to kill me like he did. No, no, that's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a reverence and it's a a, a respect that we have for who God is. A reverence and a respect for his holiness and a healthy fear of the Lord can really be a catalyst for true worship. Think of it this way. There's a massive storm. Maybe you've experienced this. Massive storm. It's raining hard. It's windy. You're down by the coast and you're looking out at the ocean. The waves are huge and the the sea is stormy. Now, if you are in a boat out in the midst of that, it's terrifying. You are scared. If you're out on a surfboard in the midst of that, you are terrified. But if you're watching a stormy sea like that from the comfort of a house or a restaurant, the fireplace is on, you have your cup of joe in your hand, and you're just watching the wind and the waves, it's, it's awesome. Your, your perspective is completely different. You're looking at it from a, a sense of like, wow, that, that is amazing. That just, it magnifies the greatness of God. You're mesmerized by what you are seeing. I think a great definition of the fear of the Lord is this. It's awe mixed with intimacy. Awe mixed with intimacy. You see, the fear of God depends upon your relationship to him. The Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you are an unbeliever, yeah, that's a fearful thing. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and and you're standing before God, you're going to answer for one thing. God's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? You were presented the gospel several times and you rejected it. That's a fearful thing. You reject Jesus and you end up in hell for all of eternity. And it's not that God sent you there. You chose to go there by rejecting his gift of salvation. If you are playing the hypocrite, it's, it's a, a terrifying thing to stand before God and be exposed by him. But the Bible also says to those who are his followers, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's comforting. To know that the hand of God is going to uphold me today. You know, the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. Again, if you're an unbeliever, that's, a, that's an ominous, that's a daunting picture, a consuming fire. But if you're a follower of Jesus, know this. God is a consuming fire and he's not seeking to burn you up. He's wanting to warm you up and to brighten you up so that you can live and shine for Jesus. And get this, God loves you enough that with that fire, he'll prune the things out of your life that don't belong. Because the Bible says he's committed to completing the work that he has begun in us. 
So when sin is dealt with, it produces a healthy fear of God in our lives and in his church. Number three, purity results in power. Look at verse 12. It says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Verse 14, and the believers were, in, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought out the sick out into the streets and they laid them on beds and couches that at, the, at, the, the, at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. And also multitude, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed." The purity resulted in power as many more signs and wonders were done. There were more miracles and more healings. And it was just an incredible, it was more of God's presence being poured out upon the church. But notice it comes after they were purified. Listen, you know what our problem is? Our problem is, is we want the power and we want the miracles and we want God to move, but we want it without the purity so often. But God doesn't work that way. You know, we pray for revival and we want God to bring revival. And I wonder if God is saying, will you guys purify yourselves? So often when God was going to meet with his people, he would call them to consecrate themselves, to purify themselves for a number of days before he was going to show up. I wonder if he's doing that with us today. And here's the question, are we willing to be purified? You know, we sing that song sometimes, holy fire, burn away all the stuff in me that doesn't belong. Are we willing to pray that? Are we willing to sing that? Here's number four. Purity results in respect from others. Notice verse 13 again. It says, yet none of the rest dared join them, but people esteemed them highly. But then it says that there were those who were at it. So, so what is it saying here? None dare join them. What is it saying? Well, here's what this is referring to. The news of Ananias and what happened to Ananias and Sapphira spread in such a way that it had a way of weeding out the casual followers. It had a way of weeding out the hypocrites. People were like, I'm out. (laughs) That's not going to happen to me. But there were others who were turning to the Lord in droves. Because here's why. There was such a heart of love and purity and integrity amongst these followers of Jesus that the people around them that didn't know the Lord just esteemed them highly. They were attracted to them. They were like, these are people who can be trusted. And I think unbelievers today are less interested in the hype and the show and all of that type of stuff that so often gets associated with church. And what they're looking for is something real in us. They're looking for people who, can, who are authentic, who are genuine. And I think people in the world today look at a genuine, authentic believer and they might, and this is their, their mentality. I might, I might not agree with his beliefs, but I'm so glad he's here. I'm so glad he works at this company. I'm so glad she works at this company because they're such great people to work with. You know, I wonder sometimes 
Is our city better because Calvary Vista is here? I, I hope so. If we suddenly did not exist anymore as a church, would, would they miss us? I hope so. If you moved out of your neighborhood, would your neighbors care or would they celebrate? <laughs> <You know? laughs> we live in a day and age where the church has two big black eyes because of all the scandals that have been happening. It's like every day it seems like there's a new scandal, a new pastor, a new leader, a new parishioner, somebody who has you know, sinful behavior. And here's the question. How do we combat that? I'm going to ask the band to come up right now as we close out our time. I think the way that we combat that is when people in your circle of influence see you living an authentic life for Jesus. You know, our world today is looking for hope. They're looking for something real. And there is nothing more real than Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and rose again from the dead to prove that he's exactly who he said he was, God in human flesh, and who lives today to give life to all of us who believe in his name. And his desire is to shine in us and to shine through us. But you know what, church? Before we can be filled, sometimes we need to first be emptied. We need to empty ourselves. We want great power. We want great grace. But you know, great grace comes through humility. God says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. And I think God is saying to some of us here today, stop playing games. You need to get real. I think God is saying to some of us today, we need to stop pretending. I think God is maybe saying to some of us today, are you willing to be emptied? And I would ask you this question. What is in your life? What is in my life that we're just hanging on to too much, too long? That we need to say, God, empty me of this. As the band leads us in this this song, this chorus that we're going to sing, that we've sung it before, I want to encourage you, all of us here, let's just get real with God right now. Let's ask him to burn away the stuff in us that we've put in front of him, the stuff in us that doesn't belong. You know, this time of response is such a part of our culture here at Calvary Vista that, that, you know, we we just don't want to end and go, okay, have a great day, you know. Don't forget about Ananias and Sapphira, you know. No, but let's, let's do business with God right now as a church. Amen? Let's bring our hearts before him. Maybe as the band begins to lead us, maybe you want prayer. There'll be people up front who are available for prayer. Maybe you just want to come in, in that attitude of humility and kneel down on this padded carpet. Feel free to do that. But I just beg of you as, as your pastor, let's just take this moment right now and let's be real in our hearts before the Lord.